I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Christian and his companion walked with great delight. They drank also of the water of the river, which was pleasant and enlivening to their weary spirits. I do find it so fascinating being on this trail that we're going to all these places that Bunyan knew and loved and that he had a relationship with and I think it somehow permeates the writing, that kind of love of place. Gosh, so it's crazy to think that it was on this site that Bunyan was imprisoned for that long a time, 12 years, and also that this is where he started to write, this is where he was given paper and pen. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den, and I laid me down in that place to sleep, and as I slept, I dreamed a dream. That's the first sentence of the Pilgrim's Progress, from this world to that which is to come, delivered under the similitude of a dream. A fictional Christian allegory by John Bunyan, which Robert McCrum has described as the ultimate English classic. It was first published in 1678 and translated into several European languages in Bunyan's lifetime and has seen thousands of different editions. 200 years after Bunyan's death, it was claimed that every household in England possessed two books, the Bible and a copy of The Pilgrim's Progress. The most cultivated man cannot find anything to praise more highly and the child knows nothing more amusing, said Samuel Johnson. And the historian E.P. Thompson called it one of the foundation texts of the English working class movement. It's inspired writers as diverse as William Blake and William Makepeace Thackeray, Charlotte Bronte, Mark Twain, C.S. Lewis, John Steinbeck and Enid Blyton. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in this episode I'm going on a pilgrimage from the City of Destruction along the narrow path to the Celestial City, and I'm hoping to meet various demons, giants and hobgoblins, as well as other pilgrims along the way. But first, let me introduce our guest for today's episode. We're very lucky to be joined by the novelist Rachel Joyce. Rachel, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. The novelist Rachel Joyce began her career as an actor, performing leading roles for the RSC, the National Theatre and Cheek by Jowl, and she began writing radio plays for BBC Radio 4 in the late 90s. 
In 2007, she wrote a play, To Be a Pilgrim, which she expanded and published as a novel in 2012 as The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry. And it became a phenomenon. It was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Book Prize, longlisted for the Man Booker Prize, and is an international bestseller. Since then, her novels have sold over 5 million copies worldwide, and they have been translated into 36 different languages. In 2014, she published a companion to Harold Fry, The Love Song of Miss Queenie Hennessy, and 2022 sees the publication of the concluding part of the trilogy, Maureen Fry and the Angel of the North. Rachel, Harold Fry has been described as a Bunyan-esque allegory, and at one point in the novel, a character tells Harold that what you're doing is a pilgrimage for the 21st century. Can you remember when you first came across John Bunyan and the Pilgrim's Progress? And, and do you think you had it in mind while you were writing Harold Fry? I think it was very much in my mind when I was writing the book, but partly because I'm that generation at school who were, we, we did read Pilgrim's Progress and Canterbury Tales and <laughs> yes. the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I was actually one of those children who really loved them. Uh, so I think it was very much in my mind, if not consciously, when I was writing uh, The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, because you have all those, um, those kind of universal and archetypal images, and also so much about structure that I really think influenced how I write generally, but very much that book. Well, I'm really looking forward to unpacking that over the course of today. And of course, um, the epigraph to Harold Fry are the lyrics to the famous hymn, To Be a Pilgrim, which comes from... Pilgrim's Progress. It does, and in fact, as you know, as you said, the radio play was called to be a pilgrim. Mm. I, I felt it was very much, you know, following in the steps mm. of, of that. Well, we're going to make our own pilgrimage today, and let's start by describing where we're standing, because um, we're standing in the middle of the city of Bedford, in Bedfordshire, and we're standing on St Peter's Green, underneath a rather impressive statue of John Bunyan in his uh, 17th century cloak, holding out a book and, and in the act of preaching. I imagine it's the Bible that he's holding. And so this feels like an appropriate spot to head off from on a pilgrimage to discuss John Bunyan and his works. Rachel, as we walk through the streets of Bedford, I wonder, can you remember what it was that drew you to writing about pilgrimage in the first place? Yeah, I mean, there were a number of things, but I think one is just that I was really fascinated by what a pilgrimage would mean now if you're not, you know, a churchgoer. So what is it you're trying to find and what is it you'll find along the way? Those things really, really interest me and still do. But uh, also a journey is, you know, it's such a brilliant storyline because it, you know by necessity a story is a journey but if you have an actual journey as well there's so much you can do with landscape that can reflect or get in the way of your hero's journey so it's you know it's such a classic structure I mean it continues to draw me I keep writing stories about people going on journeys I don't <laughs> seem to be able to help it but I'm going to try and write one where somebody stays at home <laughs> next <laughs> well and of course that I mean that's exactly what Bunyan was tapping into with his book, wasn't it? You know, the, the excitement of a journey and that yes. narrative drive that it, it gives a story. Yes. So we, we've just we've turned down St Cuthbert Street and we're standing opposite a little cottage um, with a blue plaque which says, on this site stood the cottage where John Bunyan lived from 1655. 
And so it was on this spot that Bunyan was living when he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. And so that opening moment where he dreams of a man, he says, I dreamed and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, a book in his hand and a great burden upon his back. Now, this is the pilgrim. This is the, the character we're going to be following through this narrative. And he's standing with his back to his house. We can imagine him standing at that front door, perhaps, um, and setting off from here on his journey. And we're going to be following his footsteps today, by foot and in the car as well, making our own pilgrimage from this, the city of destruction in the book, to the celestial city at the end of our journey. But you have a similar moment in Harold Fry, don't you, when, when Harold is, he, he reaches the threshold of his house and his life has sort of become smaller and smaller and he hardly leaves the house, really. And there's a moment at the threshold where he, he, he smells the warmth and the salt air rushing into his nose. And I feel like there's a similar moment of him issuing out into the story. There definitely is. But there was also that moment uh, where, you know, right at the beginning of, of Pilgrim's Progress, he's mm. asking, what shall I do? And the question you can see is really, you know, it's tormenting him and eating him up that he doesn't know what to do to ease that burden. And I very much had that in mind. I think it's a great starting point for a story of just when you see that there is a state of stasis or sleepfulness, you know, or the kingdom is dead and what can be done to bring back life so I think that, that you know that was very much in my mind but also just looking at the cottage now and, and thinking of him then and then us standing here now and people walking past wheelie bins outside it's a sort of mad conflict you get don't you between the past and the present where both feel alive Absolutely. There's layers. You can sort of unpeel them like an onion, yep. can't you? Definitely. One of the reasons he was based here um, and stayed here was that, as I said, he was a preacher and his congregation started to meet just around the corner in a place where they still continue to meet today. So let's go on to hear a little bit more about his life and his work. I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door, but his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on, crying, Life! Life! Eternal life! So he looked not behind him, but fled towards the middle of the plain. Wow, we're just coming up to the Bunyan meeting, the meeting house of the Bunyan community. It's a really impressive building. The congregation started meeting here in 1672 when one of them bought a, a simple barn in an orchard just here for 90 pounds. But they've met on this site ever since and it, the building was replaced in 1707 and then this very grand red brick neoclassical building was built in 1850. It's beautiful, isn't it? Gosh, well, let's head on in. I think we're expected. Henry, Hi. John, yes. Good to meet you. Hi. This is Rachel Hi, Joyce, Hello. novelist. Hello. Come on in. Thank you very much. Thank you. And then straight through, and you're in the church itself. Perfect. Nice. Gosh, so we've just stepped into the church, and it's a beautiful, big, open, airy space, a gallery running right round 
each side of it, a big organ at the end. And my first impression is just so much light coming in and it's beautifully painted in white and, and sky blue. It's a very welcoming space. And we're really lucky to have been allowed into the meeting house today and we're meeting John Pestel, who is a volunteer here at the John Bunyan Museum and Church and he's also the author of a book called Travel with John Bunyan, which gives you, it's a brilliant book, which gives you great tips on how to follow in the footsteps of Bunyan and the Pilgrim's Progress. John, can I start by asking you a rather big question, but who was John Bunyan? Why is he a significant character? Well, John Bunyan was born in the early part of the 17th century, uh, not far from uh, the centre of Bedford, in a little hamlet in the parish of Elstow. He was born into a low-class family who were braziers. Uh-huh. So, for example, they were menders of uh, kettles and pots and pans, metal right. workers. Right. He was actually uh, rather a rogue. <laughs> right. Uh, around the village, he was a, the nuisance boy. He suffered terribly with nightmares, which right. made matters worse. And... Uh, he was also a notorious swearer, foul-mouthed. Excellent. So much so that uh, the village shopkeeper, who herself was known for her language, <laughs> reprimanded him one day for such language, saying to him that he would taint the whole town with such behaviour. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. And, you know, what did he go on to do? You know, what's a potted sort of description of Bunyan as a writer? When he was uh, 16 years of age, his mother died of influenza, mm. followed a month later by his sister, and within three or four months, their father remarried for the third time. Gosh. And all this family trauma seemed to upset John because uh, within weeks, he had joined Oliver Cromwell's side of the Civil War Army and he was billeted over in Buckinghamshire at Newport Pagnell. And uh, so he was in the army for two and a half years, uh, came out, and there was then some reconciliation back home mm -hmm. because he rejoined the family firm. And he started to settle down as the mender of pots and pans with his father. He was now 19 years of age, thereabouts. By the time he's 20, he must have married because there's an entry in the village church register of marriage right. and uh, the birth of a child in uh, 1650. His wife, we don't know her name, we know that she had a religious upbringing and uh, that pious way of living began to affect John mm. and we see over some years a real change in conversion in his life and he settles down and by the time he's um, around 27 years of age uh, there is a complete conversion in his life. He attends church regularly and during his working life he met up with um, some women in the town centre here in Bedford who were worshippers of the origins of the church we're now standing in. Uh -huh. And uh, as he sat and listened to them, he realised he was out of his depth. 
because they had a real strong faith in Jesus Christ and uh, the things of scripture. And he really only had sort of a head knowledge of all this. Mm. And, and all this began to affect his way of life. They introduced him to the uh, first minister of this church who had, um, if you like, Bible lessons with him. Mm. Now, is that John Gifford? Is That's that right? Mr. John Gifford. That's who correct. Who was a very you know, important mentor for Bunyan. And, he was and indeed. It, and appears in the Pilgrim's Progress as the character of the interpreter or the evangelist, a kind of you know, the person who opens this pilgrim's eyes to... That's, that, that's right, yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, by the time we get to the mid-1650s, Bunyan's qualities are seen by the, the new church, and uh, he goes out with men that actually leave the church to go preaching around the villages of Bedfordshire. Uh -huh. And that's how he gets into preaching. By all accounts, he was an exceptional preacher, right? And it's the fact that he was an exceptional preacher that the national authorities begin to get onto him and see him as a possible threat. And by the time we get to 1660 with a new king, Charles II, uh -huh, with new policies, they want him, as we say today, off the streets. So we have the arrest and uh, by the winter of 1660, early 61, he's in prison. Right, and he spent many years in prison, and it was in prison that he began to write seriously. Yes. I guess he had a lot of time. But he started by writing a kind of spiritual memoir, sort of autobiography, of his um, conversion, which he published as Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And it seems likely that the germ of an idea for the Pilgrim's Progress began while he was in prison, even though it was published a while later. But, John, tell me just... Can you give us a little bit more of the context? So why, why was he not allowed to preach? And, and what kind of a congregation was it that set up this church? Mr. John Gifford was going against the established church. Mm -hmm. They were dissenters, non-conformists. They did not conform to the national church. Even today, this church is a non-conformist church. Mm -hmm. It's such a fascinating time of, in history, isn't it, that that interregnum, the time between the monarchies, all sorts of different versions of worship sprang up, didn't they? And, and yes. there was sort of tolerance during the interregnum, and then increasingly, once Charles II came back in, the authorities cracked down on, these, on the dissenters, as you say. But, but how does the Bunyan meeting and, and the Bunyan Museum continue to celebrate Bunyan's memory today? Well, on the site, there is a dedicated museum and we get visitors from all over the world. We have school children come in. It's on the local curriculum at schools around Bedfordshire. And uh, the church itself is this year celebrating that 350th anniversary of the um, fact that Bunyan was released from prison. Mm -hmm. He received a license that year, 1672, and uh, the church first met on this site in a barn of an orchard that was on this site originally. So it's a special year uh, for Bunyan itself. How fantastic. Well, what a perfect moment to be discussing him in, in this episode. And John, just to, to finish, really, what kind of effect do you think Bunyan has had on the city of Bedford, given that this church is here and his statue stands on St Peter's Green? You know, how does Bedford regard their most famous... Uh, sa sadly, in the modern world, uh, Bunyan isn't as revered 
as he was particularly in the Victorian age. Mm. For example, on the front of this church, there are uh, at the entrance two bronze doors mm. that were established here in the late uh, uh, 19th century. And when they were installed and there was a, a dedication service, the street was crowded with over 3,000 people. Wow. Uh, they couldn't have all got in here, but s such was the admiration for anything Bunyan. When the statue was erected in 1874, it was estimated there was a crowd of 10,000. Wow, wow. Uh, school children were invited to the dedication. Following the unveiling, uh, they were taken into the town centre, I believe it was the Corn Exchange, and it's reported they ate between them a tonne of cake. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, that's a real measure of support. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Well, how, what an extraordinary spot, and as you say, on the 350th anniversary of the congregation meeting here. Yeah. Well, John, thank you for setting us up at the start of our pilgrimage. I feel like My we've got pleasure. a much clearer idea of who Bunyan was. My pleasure. Um, and I'm really looking forward to the rest of our day. Thank you for inviting us in. Thank you. Well, we're about to head out of Bedford now, but before we go, let's just stop here on the corner of Silver Street and the High Street, because this... In fact, look, here's a plaque on the floor which says that this was the site of Bedford County Jail, where John Bunyan was imprisoned for 12 years. And, well, today it's an it's a ice cream shop called <laughs> Sunday's Gelato. But, um, in fact, in John Pestel's book about Bunyan. He describes this site. It says, it is believed that it had two stories and two cells below ground level, one of which had no natural light. It must have been bitterly cold in winter as there were no fireplaces and the prisoners would have slept on straw. Gosh, so it's crazy to think that it was on this site that Bunyan was imprisoned for that long a time, 12 yes, years. 12 years is a very long time. It's a really long time. And also that this is where he started to write. This is where he was given paper and pen. And, and so he was provided with paper and pen, was he? Even yes. though he would be known to be a little well, dangerous? I, or? I have a feeling that I've read that he, it actually wasn't too strict an imprisonment. And he was occasionally okay. let out, in fact. Right. But I think he fathered a child while he was in prison. Oh, so I think there was definitely <laughs> some short leave while yes. he was here. But I guess... It sounds like, you know, if he spent most of his time here, it sounds pretty grim. It does just make me think, though, about what makes people write and whether the environment that you're in can actually produce the writing. Just that how interesting it is when people write stories that are about adventure or, you know, mm. kind of beautiful places when they themselves are, you know, imprisoned and in a cell right. and constrained. Yes. I mean, who you think of someone, I mean, someone like Marco Polo describing his own travels while well, he was Yes, uh, yes. I mean, I, you know, I think of writers who, you know, for instance, won't look out of a window while they're writing. They only uh, want to look at a wall uh. because they want the, the freedom, I guess, for the, their imagination to go where it needs to go without being distracted by, you know, anything else. How interesting. But also just whether if you are in prison like that, the need to escape is, is so kind of powerful that it can produce that kind of writing. How interesting. So actually the very fact of confinement can actually be a kind of, can encourage your imagination. Oh yes, and contribute to it, certainly. Or, or kind of provoke the need. What a lovely idea. 
Well, now let's head south. Let's leave the prison. Let's leave the den that's in the opening line of uh, Pilgrim's Progress and head over the bridge and off on our pilgrimage. Now, I saw in my dream that just as they had ended this talk, they drew near to a very miry slough that was in the midst of the plain, and they, being heedless, did both fall suddenly into the bog. The name of the slough was Despond. So we're just heading south out of Bedford now, and we're passing what used to be a, a sort of marshy area called Squitch Fen, which some people think um, might be the basis for one of the first areas that the pilgrim comes across, which is called the Slough of Despond, this kind of marshy, miry area that's sort of constantly wet and muddy because of the... It's, it's almost like the sort of side products of human sin drain into this awful marsh. And it's like a quicksand, isn't it? The pilgrim almost gets caught yeah. in it. Um, so we can picture that as we, as we head south out of Bedford. And it's interesting, I think, that that comes very near the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress. It's like there's an instant trap that, you could, that could stop you in your tracks. And it's only when a character called Help reaches out its hand and, yes. and pulls... Christian out of the Slough of Despond that he can carry on in his journey. Yes, but actually shows him the steps. He says, I'll show you the steps that are mm. actually already there. It's just that they're very difficult Good to find. Point. Yes, absolutely. So the way out is there. It's just that you can become so bogged down by your own doubt or mm-hmm. fear that you can't even help yourself out. I think that's what I find so... Um, Kind of vivid about that detail at the beginning. Yes, that's that is a brilliant detail, and I feel like that you know the start of Harold Fry. There's a similar you know he's sort of stuck in a rut, isn't he? What's yes. what's the how would you describe the relationship between Harold and his wife Maureen at the start of that? Well, that album? kind of quagmirey detail I think is very right for how I see the beginning. They're they're stuck in a place that they've been in basically for twenty years, where you've got you've become so stuck that can't see the stone steps you can't see the way out and the only thing to do is to stay you know in the problem so you stay in this place of not speaking and even when you do use words they're not meaningful words they're about passing jam and right so I, I kind of felt it was as I was saying earlier it's where you at the beginning of a story I always kind of think to myself right what needs to be changed <laughs> what, you know, what is the thing that ha- why, why does this story need to occur and it felt to me that with Harold and Maureen, they were sitting at this breakfast table where they could have been sitting for 20 years, and they might well sit for another 20 years mm. if Harold doesn't do something. And I think that's when you start thinking about the unconscious and that you can be propelled to do something that your, you know, your soul needs you to do before you've even consciously found the words for it. And in a way, there's a similar hand reached out to him, isn't there, at the start of the novel? His, yes. his letter arrives yes. from the from a woman from his past that he hasn't maybe thought about that much recently, a woman called Queenie Hennessy. Yes. And this is almost like that hand of a start of Pilgrim's Progress pulling him out it's of It's exactly this. the same. Right. It feels to me like that question, you know, what can I do? And sort of realises very quickly that to write a reply isn't enough. Uh-huh. You know, that, that actually you've got to do. Doing is the thing. But just what? What do you do? And that is when he sets out on his pilgrimage. Yes. And I'm just saying we've just turned into a 
road yes. will progress yeah. way. Isn't that brilliant? It's a bad accident. So you said when you're looking for the signs, you suddenly realise they're all there. They're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, we're coming into the, the small village of Elstow, just on the outskirts of Bedford. And this is where Bunyan was born, and this is where we're going to stop next to discuss the next step on his journey. Wow, gosh. Oh, it's so pretty. Lots of half-timbered buildings. It, it couldn't be much more of a sort of typical old English village, really, could it? Yeah. In process of time, Christian got up to the gate. Now, over the gate, there was written, Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. He knocked, therefore, more than once or twice, saying, May I now enter here? Well, we're just walking onto the village green at Elstow, a really ancient open space, it seems. Look, there's this old post in the middle, which I think was you know, the centre of the markets that were held in this spot. And there's a very old-looking moot hall over there, again, half-timbered, a really spectacular building. And so in some ways, I think Bunyan would, would recognise the scene today. And... Um, it's on this green that a really significant event happened in Bunyan's life. He was, as a young man, he was playing a game here with friends on a Sunday, a game called Tip Cat, which I think was a sort of a, a ball game. Right. Um, and of course, as a Christian, he shouldn't have been playing games on a Sunday. Yeah. And he wrote later in his um, memoir, he said, as I was in the midst of a game at cat and having struck it one blow from the hole... Just as I was about to strike it a second time, a voice did suddenly dart from heaven into my soul, which said, Wilt thou leave thy sins and go to heaven, or have thy sins and go to hell? And he later credited this moment when a, when a voice sort of came down to him at wow. this spot as being the sort of conversion moment that made him into a Christian. It's an extraordinarily open space, though, still, yeah. isn't it? And you have a huge expanse of sky over you. You can imagine a crack in the clouds. Now, at the start of the Pilgrim's Progress, after Christian has escaped from the Slough of Despond, he heads towards a small door, which he calls the Wicket Gate. And this is the entrance to the narrow path that's going to take him all the way to the Celestial City. And many people think that this gate is one of the doors into Elstow Abbey, which we're looking at now. So let's walk over there and see if we can find the Bunyan's Wicket Gate. We're just walking up to the abbey now, and its its original foundation dates to 1075, so it's a really old church. So we're looking at a little door in the side of this old church uh, with a very ornate archway over it. Now, when Christian, the pilgrim, gets to the wicket gate, a character called Goodwill lets him in, but pulls him through quickly because he says a little distance from this gate there is erected a strong castle of which Beelzebub is the captain. And from thence both he and them that are with him shoot arrows at those that come up to this gate, if happily they may die before they can enter in. And the reason people think that maybe this is the Wicket Gate is that just next to it is a separate bell tower, a separate building to the church. It seems to be equally old. It's like a separate, almost like a campanile in, in yes. Italy. Yes. And yes, if you had a vivid imagination, you could imagine needing to get into that door before you were attacked from this fortress outside now 
the Pilgrim's Progress was such a huge success that Bunyan went on to write a, a second part. And yes. the second part is pretty much the same pilgrimage, but yes. following his wife, Christiana, yes. and their children, following in his footsteps and retracing his route. And isn't there a dog this time as well? There's a, there, yeah. <laughs> Always good to bring in a dog, I think. <laughs> well, there's certainly, when, they, when Christiana reaches this point at the wicket gate, um, she's almost too scared to enter because there's this terrifying barking from the other side of the door. And uh, when Goodwill pulls her through, he explains that that's Beelzebub's dog, um, uh-huh. presumably in this bell <laughs> right. tower that we're standing next to, yes. uh, barking. I wondered, you know, at the end of um, the love song of Queenie Hennessy, you write that you you don't see that as a sequel to Howl yes. Fry. You say, I've not written a prequel or a sequel. I've, I would call this book a companion. Yeah. And I wondered, did you, did you always envisage that there would be sequels to... Uh, Harold Fry, or, or did those come along? It, it sort of came along, but I mean, I did realise as I was writing the second, or the, you know, whichever, however I called it, that there were three books. Mm. But sometimes you know there are three, but you think you may not be able to write them all. And actually, if you don't mention it, nobody will know. <laughs> so that's kind of what I did for a very long time. And then I think it was partly writing the screenplay for the mm. film of uh, The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry. I... We got very close to Maureen again, and I always knew it was Maureen's book that that was missing. And I kind of knew the tone of it, but I just couldn't quite find it. And I think I wasn't ready to write it until I'd let go of something. And I think the the film, and then actually being in Berwick-on-Tweed for the end of the filming, Mm. allowed me to say goodbye in some, you know, sort of strange way to the whole... Because it's been with me for ten years. And so... I realised that Maureen's book I'd always thought was set at the same time as Harold Fry, mm. but I realised it was set now. And then when I realised that, I thought, oh, I can round it off. I can, I can do the trilogy. Well, let's imagine we're passing through this small wicket gate. And as Goodwill says, uh, we should look before us. Do you see the narrow way? That is the way you must go. It is as straight as a rule can make it. So... We'll have to follow the roads, but we'll try to travel in as straight a <laughs> route as possible along our pilgrimage today. Let's carry on. So, Rachel, one of the next locations that Christian the Pilgrim comes to is the Hill of Difficulty. And this this narrow path that he's following goes straight up over this very steep hill. Um, And I wonder, you know, one of the elements of Harold Fry's pilgrimage, which kicks in very quickly, is the physical difficulty of Mm. making this walk. You know, he's quite unprepared. He's wearing his old boat shoes. Wrong shoes. Wrong shoes, no no equipment. But do you think the physical difficulty is part of what a pilgrimage is? Yes, I do. I think that's one of the kind of first stages, I would say, is is the physical hardship as you pitch yourself against the walk and realise your own frailty and, and also that you can try to push yourself too hard and then you can inflict damage which is what Harold Fry does so it's kind of then finding the gauge it's kind of finding out about how you're going to do it in a kind of humble way really where you're recognising your body's limitations as opposed to just being so gung-ho which Harold is at the beginning and Christian is too I would say at the beginning you know like you know you're looking for well how can I do this the easiest way because actually that hill looks really really hard (laughs) and isn't he at one point kind of doing it on his hands and knees yes he has to kind of crawl really really difficult and 
what I love that because it's that's so contemporary an image. I can really yes. get my head around it. I understand that. Well, that makes total sense to me. And I, I wonder if we've been saying some of these names like the Slough of Despond, the Hill of yeah. Difficulty, yeah. and these characters called Christian, called Help, called. Yes.
Well, we're just coming into the town of Ampt Hill, which is named after a hill, uh, rather a steep hill, which we're just about to head up now. And some people think that this is the model for the hill of difficulty in the Pilgrim's Progress. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He lifted up his eyes. And behold, there was a very stately palace before him. The name whereof was Beautiful, and it stood just by the highway side. When Christian gets to the top of the Hill of Difficulty, he comes to a place called the Palace Beautiful. But before he can get there, there's a very narrow passage which was about a furlong off from the porter's lodge of this palace. And he sets off down this narrow passage, but then sees that halfway down, he espied two lions in the way. And I feel like um, we've walked into an equivalent of that narrow passage, haven't we? We've got <laughs> we to the have. top of the hill, and we're walking down a little avenue of trees. Yeah. Um, and at the end, I, I can see it emerging through the trees, a rather spectacular structure, but... Maybe we're passing between the lines now. He, he, initially, Christian is scared of them, but he calls yes. out to the porter, and the porter says, if you look closely, you'll see they're chained to either wall, and if you walk down the very centre of the path, they won't be able to get to you. But the lions are brilliantly placed, I think, because somebody before that has told us that right. there are going to be lions. Yes. So John Bunyan is doing brilliant suspense building. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he meets someone fleeing down up, the hill. He's yeah. setting up the lions for us, and then we see the lions, and then we find out that actually they're chained, but that if you're so fearful that you run away at this point, then you're not kind of worthy to be a, a pilgrim or to brilliant. continue with the journey. We're reaching the end of the avenue now and and we're looking at the shell of what was clearly once a really beautiful house. 
these are the remains of Houghton House, which was built in the early 17th century by the poet Mary Sidney, the sister of Sir Philip Sidney, oh. also a poet. And she lived here. It was built in 1615. And John Bunyan may well have come here following his father's trade to fix household items which the house needed fixing. And wow, what an extraordinary it's prospect. It's really imposing. It, it almost looks more magnificent today in its ruined state. It's so dramatic. Because you can see right through it, can't yeah. you, to the Yeah, sky. it's like the skeleton or the shell of a building. At the time, it must have been amazing because there is nothing. I mean, there's blue sky and mm. then there's this... Mm. I mean, the, the land just folds outwards and outwards and then this huge red brick structure. It's perched right on the edge of the hill, isn't it, looking out over Bedford Plain and you can yeah. see for miles and miles around. Let's walk inside and see how it feels. When Christian arrives at the Palace Beautiful, which many people think Bunyan based on Houghton House, yeah. he's welcomed inside by piety prudence and charity and when Bunyan was alive the the house was owned by the Earl of Aylesbury who had an amazing collection of objects and it's interesting that piety, prudence and charity convinced Christian to stay here for several days and show him the the sort of treasures of the house these amazing sort of religious written works and jewels and so on so now we're inside you, you know you can see the remains of fireplaces and and interior walls. You can see where the upper floors would have met the walls um, from the change in the brickwork. And the windows are are vast, aren't they? They're big, yeah. I mean, they're very kind of ambitious. It must have been very light inside for a 17th century building. Yeah. Let's have a look at the view through here. Look, I can see a train threading its way (laughs) through the plain below us. That's a magnificent vista. That really is something. It's interesting to me that one of the characters that greets him here is Charity, one of the Christian graces. But Charity is a theme that runs through your novel as well, isn't it, Rachel? Yes. In some ways, I feel like there's almost a sort of transformative moment for Harold Fry when he he comes to a realisation that he's been doing it wrong and the way to do this pilgrimage is to rely on the charity of others. Yeah. And would you agree that that, that, that's a moment where he sort of he sort of transitions from one state to another. As yes, I, th- I think it is. I mean, I think it's similar to this moment where, where Christian arrives at the Palace Beautiful in that uh, he's kind of, he, they set him off with the armour that he needs. Yes, don't they? They, they dress equip him in armour, yes. For the rest of the journey. And they do show him the, tr- you know, the treasures. But the, similarly for Harold, he reaches a point where he realises that he has to be a guest and that if you're a guest, it means you have to love and then you have to leave. Um, and that you you know you rely on the on the generosity the charity of others and that to do that is in itself an act of generosity when you allow somebody else to help you you know you you come out of your own introverted place mm. but Just i do find hand. it so fascinating being on this trail that we're going to all these places that bunyan knew yes. and loved yes. and that he had a relationship with and i think even though it's not specific to the writing you know that we know that it it somehow permeates the writing that Mm. kind of love of place especially when we think about 
when he's writing in that jail or, you know, in the ice cream shop, as yeah. it now is, but, you know, just like, and you're in such an enclosed space. Yeah. And yet you're imagining, you're kind of filling your mind with these places that you know and you have a relationship with. I, th- I think you get it as you're reading, even if it's subliminal, you, you know it's there. I think that's so true. And so fascinating to hear you as another writer recognising that in Bunyan's work. Well, as you say, these graces, they, they equip Christian with his armour. And he's, you know, in the illustrations to The Pilgrim's Progress, he suddenly is transformed into almost a kind of chivalric knight. He's he kind is, of heads forth he on his next phase of his journey. Yes. And, and so as it's we'll a very dis- important part, isn't it? It's almost like the end of Act One, you would right. say. You know, yeah. like this is the kind of moment where he's equipped now to do the journey that he hasn't been equ- completely exactly. equipped for before. And as we'll discover, it's, it's good timing that he's been given armour <laughs> at this stage because he's about to be sorely tested. So let's head back to the car and carry on following Christian's footsteps. So he went on. And Apollyon met him. Now, the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish, and they are his pride. And he had wings like a dragon, feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire and smoke, and his mouth was as the mouth of a lion. So Christian sets off from the Palace Beautiful dressed in his armour, and he enters a couple of valleys which are terrifying in different ways. The first is the Valley of Humiliation, where he's attacked by this demon called Apollyon, a really terrifying, fire-breathing, scaly demon. And I think, you know, it's a biblical demon who appears in the book of Revelation. I think the name Apollyon means um, king of the locusts or something. And that's a dramatic fight, isn't it? He almost, it almost perishes and he just manages to pull it back. And then he enters the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And this is just a really scary place, isn't it? Uh, Rachel, would you mind reading out It's a horrible description of it in the book? Yeah, it's as dark as pitch. We also saw here the hobgoblins, satyrs and dragons of the pit. We heard also in that valley a continual howling and yelling as of a people under unutterable misery, who were sat down in affliction and irons. And over that valley hangs the discouraging clouds of confusion. Death also doth always spread his wings over it. God. So, yeah, it's... It's pretty bleak. Bleak, this vision of a sort of personification of death spreading his wings and casting a shadow over this. And hopelessness. Uh, Yes. Well, luckily, Christian, you know... With his armour, he manages to get through these valleys. And yeah. it's, it's been said, we're just passing now through the little village of Millbrook, and some people have said that Bunyan may have based the Valley of the Shadow of Death on Millbrook Gorge, which is one of the little valleys leading off this village. Um, so maybe that's the case, who knows. But when he comes out of these two valleys, he meets another couple of pilgrims who join him, uh, one called Faithful and one called Talkative. And... Rachel, this reminds me of the moment in The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry mm-hmm. when he's joined by other pilgrims. You know, he, the story of Harold walking up the length of the country starts to spread and, and people start to join him, including a religious young man called Wilf, 
and a rather talkative yes. <laughs> man called Rich Lyon. Yes. And I, I wondered, you know, what, what is the difference between a solitary pilgrimage and a communal one? Well, I think the communal one becomes, especially in Harold Fry, it becomes about the collective. It's no longer about the individual's journey. Um, you know, whereas in in the Bunyan, he's making, he's kind of forging a relationship with one fellow pilgrim who will, who will, you know, is is a force for good and will continue yeah. with him. So he's like-minded. I was thinking more about what happens when an idea gets taken over by social media and. Um, by people who are subverting it, who are no longer doing it for the good of the spirit or you know, yeah. all the things that Harold is, is seeking to atone for or to understand, which is mainly this burden of guilt that he carries similarly to, to Christian in the uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Mm. And again, I always like it. I mean, people think I am losing the plot now, but I think that like, I th- often think of Pinocchio in structure in terms of, I mean, it's got... I would say, you know, Disney, they knew what they were doing. But um, structurally, that kind of pleasure island, I think it's called, is very similar to Vanity Fair. You know, the place right. where you lose yourself. You just are so tempted by the outside world that actually you lose your purpose and you lose your journey, your sort of process of individuation, I guess I would call it. Mm-hmm. So it's the point where it is all threatened for Harold to be lost because he's so tempted by the sun, that you know, the sort of sun figure, and also all these people that get in the way. And I'd say talkative is the same temptation. You know, yes. He could, he could subvert it. Well, talking of Vanity Fair, that is, of course, one of the most famous um, locations in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Perhaps most famous because, of course, William Thackeray used the title Vanity Fair for his great 19th century novel set during the Napoleonic Wars. But Vanity Fair is its a town that um, Christian and Faithful arrive in, and there's this huge, raucous, materialist fair going on where you can buy anything, right? Yeah. And um, Bunyan may have based this on fairs that he would have come across, like Stourbridge Fair near, near Cambridge, but also... There was a fair at Bedford, and there was a fair at Amtill, the town of Amtill, which we're just approaching the outskirts of now. And what do you think is the significance of Vanity Fair, Rachel? Because sort of everything's available to buy there, but Christian says we're here to buy the truth. Yes. I mean, I find this bit of Pilgrim's Progress really shocking when I read it, because it's so... Um, well, it's so severe. I mean, it's, it's brutal. I mean, it's death. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in standing up for their own truth... One of them is killed. Yeah, it's, they're it's tried. A, it's a kind of a strange moment, isn't it? Just, it is. It's almost because they're different to everyone else at the fair that the whole town turns on them. It turns of. on them because they refuse to be the same as everybody else at Vanity. And so, it's you know that moment when you you refuse to endorse what you disagree with. You know, and throughout history, people have suffered for for standing up for what they believe. But it it is a very shocking part of because I think as well it's so vividly written. Yes. The, well, the faithful trial. is yes. There's a trial, and then faithful is is literally burnt at the stake. Yeah, I mean it's a brutal, brutal yeah, death, yeah. Uh, and he describes it very vividly. We're just entering Amptill now, so perhaps we could imagine these streets lined with booths and stalls and crowded with people, and, and this could be our stand-in for Vanity Fair uh-huh. today. It's rather beautiful, though. That's the problem. Yeah, I think yes, I might be seduced. Yes. <laughs>
they presently saw a town before them, and the name of that town is Vanity. And at the town there is a fair kept called Vanity Fair. It is kept all the year long. At this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honours, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts as whores, boards, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and what not. We're just outside Ampt Hill now, in Ampt Hill Great Park, which is a big expanse of rolling grassy parkland with clumps of trees and wooded areas. And we've come up onto one of the heights, and we're standing in the spot that used to be Ampt Hill Castle. A huge castle used to stand here, and the sort of historical significance of Ampt Hill Castle is that uh, this is where Catherine of Aragon, Henry VIII's first wife, lived after he had divorced her. And she lived here um, till the end of her days. And we're standing next to a pillar with a, with a cross on the top of it, known as Catherine's Cross, which marks that spot. But Rachel, I thought this could be a good place to stand in for the next location that Christian meets on his pilgrimage. Because after Vanity Fair, when Faithful is burned at the stake, he's yeah. joined by another pilgrim called Hopeful. Yeah. And they're walking along and following the narrow path, and then they see a little stile off to the left and a lovely meadow running parallel with the path. And they think, oh, maybe it would be no problem just to hop over this stile and, and walk in this lovely countryside. But of course, this is a diversion from the, yes. the path they should be following. And when they sleep in this meadow, they're, they're discovered by the owner of the land, this giant called Despair, yep. who brings them back to Doubting Castle and locks them in, in the prison there. Um, this is one of the most dramatic moments in the book, right? It is, it is. It's, it's sort of like, you know, Grimm's fairy tales. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's visceral, it's, it's nasty. I mean, you, I'm gripped by it, though, as I'm reading it, as to how, how are they going to get away yeah. from this? Because you do, throughout, you think, oh, how is he going to avoid this? How is he going to avoid uh-huh. this? But a lot of it is about conversation. But this, they're, they're actually locked away and they're being punished every night by him and his wife yes, keeps right. sending him back down, the yes, giant. And, the, and he, they keep expecting to be eaten by him yes. at any moment. Yes, or torn limb from limb. Right. I think that's the other option. Right. <laughs> Yeah, he described, you know, considering Bunyan had spent so much time in prison himself, he describes the castle as a very dark dungeon, nasty and stinking to the spirit. And they're not given food, they're not given water or light. And actually, in fact, in the second part, when Christiana comes past Doubting Castle, she recruits the help of uh, fellow pilgrims and they end up destroying Doubting Castle. It's, it's raised to the ground, so it's appropriate well, in a way so, yes. that we're standing on the si- former site of a castle. But doubt, you know, this is one of the biggest stumbling blocks that Christian the Pilgrim comes across, and doubt yeah. must surely be the sort of the thing that must be hardest for pilgrims to deal with. And certainly yes. Harold Fry yes. meets with doubt, right? There's a moment yes. where, you know, we, the reason he's going on this pilgrimage is that this old friend has yeah. written a letter saying that she's dying from cancer and he decides to walk to her. Yeah. 
And at one point he meets an oncologist. Yes. Who just very rationally says, you know, I'd never tell a patient there was nothing to be done unless I was absolutely certain. Harold, you have a wife and son. If I may say so, you look tired. Yeah. Is it really necessary to walk? Yeah. And he has this crisis, doesn't it he? Is, it is a crisis. I think it is his... He, I mean, along the way, he has about three crises. There's a physical crisis, just like Christian our Pilgrim. But this one is about a crisis of, of doubt, uh-huh. of faith. And... Um, that's I think it's where you you know you just you you meet the rational world and how do you answer that mm. there is mm. you know, so he he is kind of incapacitated by mm. doubt but it was also very much when I was writing I was thinking you know doubt is the thing that is inside us isn't it that mm. we have we have to deal with and as a writer I was very much dealing with my own doubt so it was very useful to feed it in you know because part of the creative process I think as faith must be doubt I completely see that and it works so well in the narrative because we've as readers we've been so swept along with his confidence and his optimism yeah and then when this oncologist you know lays out the facts as a reader you think of course yes you know what are you doing you know and I you know we don't want to spoil the book for uh, readers who haven't read it yet but in in Pilgrim's Progress the way they get out of this dungeon is Christian says I have a key in my bosom called promise yeah that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And having discovered that key, suddenly all the doors open to them and Hopeful and Christian escape. And and there's a phone call in Harold Fry, right, that it's yes. a similar it is moment of com- it unlocks the pilgrimage again. Completely similar, yes. I mean, it's the moment in, you know, if you were filming Pilgrim's Progress, the big music would come, right. isn't it? The swishy-swirly, <laughs> yes, we're off, everything is good again, we're back on track. Well, Christian and Hopeful escape from Doubting Castle... And rather appropriately, uh, they get back to the style and they decide to erect a pillar there <laughs> to point out to people not to make the mistake they have. And so how appropriate that we're standing on the ruins of a former castle next to a, a commemorative pillar. On which note, let's continue. Let's head on to our final stop for today's pilgrimage, the Celestial City. Rachel, we're just approaching the outskirts of London now coming down the M1 and like Christian we're nearing the end of our pilgrimage after the delectable mountains he passes through the enchanted ground which is it's a bit like in with the Wizard of Oz it seems to be this ground where it's very easy to fall asleep and they need to keep talking to get through yes. it and then he arrives in Beulah this very bucolic beautiful land just on the very verge of um the destination with lovely meadows and streams and so on but then they come to the final hurdle right this deep river that has no bridge and they need to ford across it and you realize that this in the allegory this is the river of death that this is the final hurdle that christians need to step over before they reach heaven and christian and hopeful start crossing this river and Christian loses his footing and thinks he's going to drown and in that moment he, he kind of gives up yeah. he sort of almost allows himself to be sucked below the waves and this is very similar I think to the section towards the end of Harold Fry when he's almost at the end of his pilgrimage yeah. in fact he really has reached the end of his pilgrimage and then he gets very confused, he kind of uh, he ends up taking detours he doesn't mean to he doesn't, he's yeah. not quite sure where he is or what he's doing And yeah. why did that feel like an important element of his journey 
It feels important for lots of reasons, but one is that I think as you get nearer to the place that you're going, instead of feeling kind of sharp and, and knowing where you're heading, you're suddenly about to arrive. And I think there's a point of crisis where you suddenly doubt whether or not you're worthy to be there and whether you can actually see it through and whether you're able to kind of go, you know, what will happen when you get there? What's the next point? And I think with with Christian in the river, doesn't he feel that he can't see Christ anymore? It's a sort of moment where he, he's lost sight of the end. And similarly for me, when writing Harold Fry, it felt that just as he's getting close to getting there, he there's one last thing he hasn't really dealt with. And and so for me, instead of being able just to walk straight to the hospice and go in, he walks to the hospice and then presses the doorbell and then walks away again because he's not ready. It's hopeful. It's the character of hope yes. in Pilgrim's Progress who, who reaches out to Christian and gives him his hand and, and yes. pulls him through to the other side of this river. Yes. Well, similarly for Harold, there is Maureen who's been so yes. against the walk whole journey practically and the moment that he says to her you're right I want to come home she realizes that if he doesn't finish it he will never forgive himself and so she what she does is I think the kind of supreme act of courage and love in that she, in that she says no you have to keep going yeah. so for both of them it's a big turning point and it's a big test well we can imagine as we sort of uh... We're about to cross the North Circular Road, the, the Ring Road around London, so we can imagine that's the river of death that yes. we're going to cross, hopefully successfully, <laughs> yes. and head on into uh, to our final stop. The city stood upon a mighty hill, but the pilgrims went up that hill with ease because they had these two men to lead them up by the arms, and also they had left their mortal garments behind them in the river. For though they went in with them, they came out without them. They therefore went up here with much agility and speed, though the foundation upon which the city was framed was higher than the clouds. Well, like Christian, we're just approaching the very end of our pilgrimage today. We're walking into the extraordinary burial ground of Bunhill Fields, in the city of London, an old plague pit and which became the dissenter's graveyard. And really on either side, Rachel, there are just higgledy-piggledy gravestones, tombs, mausoleums. It's a really spectacular place. And in this, in the sort of central clearing which we're coming into now, I can see a big obelisk to Daniel Defoe. To the right of that is a gravestone to William Blake. But if we turn in this direction, we come to the resting place of John Bunyan, one of the most impressive tombs here, with the figure of Bunyan lying on his back on top of the casket and then a relief sculpture of Christian the Pilgrim with his burden on his back. That's very moving to see that. It is, especially having started with his uh, very active preaching statue this morning. yes. Well, in the Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian finally arrives at the celestial city, which in some ways he seems to have mapped onto London, he says that 
When Christian and Hopeful went in at the gate, lo, as they entered, they were transfigured, and they had raiment put on that shone like gold. And then I heard in my dream that all the bells in the city rang again for joy. And Rachel, here at the end of our journey, having retraced the steps of the Pilgrim's Progress today, has that changed the way you see that book at all, the way that our experience today? Well, it's an amazing thing when you actually follow the trail of a book, you know, when you bring the book to life for yourself because you engage with it in a different way. I mean, I think you partly engage with it in more of a kind of writer, you know, mm. writer's way. You try to think more about what was going on for him, mm. which is mm. really interesting mm. for us. Um, but you do just get the scale of it yes. as well. And also you really, I think what I've really got today is the beauty of it. Yes. Yes, and the that views kind of sense. There. You know, even now, you know, we're seeing that that little house where he lived in Bedford, and there are wheelie bins outside, and it feels so kind of such a kind of conflict between the old and the new. And then you step out, and you sort of feel you're in a timeless landscape mm. again. Mm, you know, completely. it's it's interesting how close it actually is. Well, what a great way to finish our conversation and our pilgrimage today. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's been great. Many thanks to Rachel Joyce, to John Pestel and the John Bunyan Museum, to Naxos Audiobooks for the clips of David Shaw Parker reading from The Pilgrim's Progress, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll leave you with this, an extract from Vera Britton's biography, In the Steps of John Bunyan. She summarises the achievement of the Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan made Bedfordshire's homely villages and peaceful streams shine with the light of heaven itself, and turned the life of an ordinary man struggling to overcome his daily temptations into a journey as heroic as Jason's quest for the Golden Fleece. He neither knew nor cared that at a single step he had created the English novel, with its long history and infinite variety. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.